0: All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, I am still with you. If only you, God, would slay the wicked, away from me, you who are bloodthirsty. They speak of you with evil intent, your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, Lord, and abhor those who are in rebellion against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Andrew. At
1: Christmas, we looked at uh, who God is. Uh, God as Trinity, uh, an eternal community, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Since then, we've been looking at some of the attributes of God. God's holiness, that aspect of God that is utterly unlike us. And his holiness is comprised of his attributes. Some theologians talk about God's perfections. God is omnipotent. That means that God has all the power that is. He is the source of all power. We looked at that last Sunday, looking at another psalm of David, Psalm 16, the heavens declare the glory of God. And here we are looking uh, at Psalm 139, another David psalm, um, where we get really perhaps the greatest summary of God's omnipresence. Omnipresence meaning omni everywhere, whole presence God is present to everybody and everything and with that presence comes knowledge it is the reason that God is omniscient, that is he knows everything that there is all the perfections of God all the attributes of God together make him God they all support each other they are all a consequence of each other and they are what makes God different from all of us So let's look at this one. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise, you perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. I think this is a good test of your relationship with God. Either God is the ultimate stalker. He knows everything about you. And that is terrifying, and God is terrifying. Or, you can be thankful that God is always present to you. That God always knows what's happening with you. That no matter where you go, God will be with you. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in behind, and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. Too lofty for me to attain. God knows every single thought, every single word, everything about us. How many of you would let a friend or a spouse or even the very closest relationship, how many of you would share your diary, your private thoughts, your innermost thoughts, your hopes and fears? They are all present to God. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me, and the light become night around me, even in the darkness, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. God is everywhere. You know, when I was a child, uh, I was eight years old, and I watched um, the landing on the moon. Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin landed on the moon. And the commentators all stress the fact that <clears throat> this was a distant, alien place, the furthest that human beings had ever been away from the Earth, that they were on their own in this desolate place. If anything went wrong, they would be as far away from uh, the world as it was possible to be. And yet when I um, read Buzz Aldrin's autobiography, he says... This is never reported. It was never in the news. When they landed, they had to make the lunar module safe. They had to switch everything off. They had to get ready to decide should they stay or should they go. And then the very next thing that they did, Buzz Aldrin was a Christian. He pulled out the sacraments. He pulled out a cup and he pulled out some bread that had been given to him by his priest. And the first thing that human beings did on the moon was celebrate the Lord's Supper because they were not alone, God was with them and they recognized that and that's why they didn't have any fear you know, one of the things that's happened to me I became a Christian when I was 30 years old and I've always had vivid dreams and sometimes they were bad dreams and this didn't happen immediately but I learned that even in a bad dream, even in a nightmare I could pray have you tried that yet? When you're terrified and you're all alone in some fantastical world inside your head, you can still pray. And I, I can't even remember the last time I had a nightmare. God is there even in my dreams. God is everywhere. There is no place that you can go, no time that you can go, nowhere where God is not. <clears throat> And this shows us how fundamentally unlike us God is. You know, this is something that I've been trying to stress over the last few weeks. God is not holy because he's like something that holy, is holy. He is holy. He's the source of holiness. He defines holiness. God is not like somebody else's love. Love is love because God is love. God is not some omnipotent, like giant human being that has all this power, some kind of big daddy that takes care of us. God is power. He is fundamentally unlike us in his nature. He is the source of everything. And God is everywhere. Now Einstein taught us that we live in four dimensions. Everything that exists needs a place. So you need place. You need dimensions. You need to be a certain uh, amount, high and wide and long. Every single thing in the universe, every atom, every star, every person, every plant, every single thing has its place because things need a place. And everything occupies a certain amount of time. It has a certain lifespan, a certain life story except God. God is not a thing like everybody. everything else in the universe. He created heavens and earth when there was nothing. God is pure spirit, which means he is immaterial. He is not dependent on the dimensions that we live in, time and space. God is without dimension, and therefore he is infinite, and unlimited, pure spirit, present to every place and every moment in every place. All of creation is present to God, and God is present in all of creation. Before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the whole world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. A thousand years in your sight are like a day that has just gone by, or like a watch in the night. In the beginning you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like clothing. You will change them, and they will be discarded. But you remain the same, and your years will never end. Every moment of your life and my life, every place that we've ever gone or can go, God is there. All moments, all places. You can think of the whole of creation or any individual human life is like a book. We have to go through the story page by page. We have to experience it in time and space page by page. But God is outside the book. He's outside heaven and earth. And so our lives are present to him completely from beginning to end. When God looks at your life and my life, he's not waiting to see what happens next. He knows the beginning of the story, he knows the middle of the story, and he knows the end of the story. They are all present to him. There are no secrets, there are no surprises. And this is true of God's relationship to everybody and everything that there is. It's the reason, and we saw this last week, it is the reason that God is faithful. He can tell us what's going to happen and make promises about our future because He knows the end from the beginning. Now, what are the consequences of that? I mean, it's great theology. And actually, this is, I think this is one place where your theology has a serious impact on your life and your ability to live in this world. It is common, you know, I'm a pastor. People come to pastors, sometimes, you know, great celebrations, um, great things in their life, weddings and baptisms, but oftentimes bad things. And they come to me fearful and anxious, worried about life, They've done something that they're ashamed of, or they've betrayed somebody, or they've hurt someone they love. They've lost something important. They've fallen on hard times, bad health, bad job, debts, addictions, whatever. Frail human beings, hurting and feeling sorry for themselves, come to pastors. That's what they do. And that's normal, because the human condition is that we are fragile, and we live in a broken world, And we're going to get hurt. We're going to get sick. One day we're all going to die. Life, in that sense, is a predicament. But the real problem, the underlying problem, no matter what the particular issue, the real problem is fear. Doubt. A sort of spiritual self-loathing. Look at what's happening to me. Look at who I am. Look at what I've done. Look at what I've become. Maybe God doesn't love me. Maybe I'm on my own. Maybe I've lost my relationship with God. Or maybe it was just a fantasy from the beginning. How could God love a person like me? How could God put up with a person like me? How could God forgive a person as terrible as me? It is doubt about God's love and God's grace and God's forgiveness in the light of the terrible things that we do and do to each other. You created my innermost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you. When I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Listen to that last verse again. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. We're like a book. And God knows the beginning, and God knows the middle, and God knows the end. And this has consequences. So think with me theologically for a moment. At your best, you can believe that God loves you. Your high moments. When things are going well. When you've been praying. When you go to a worship service. There are exalted moments where we, for an instant, could believe that we're lovable. Our best moments, our finest moments, the moments of our life that we're proud of. And on those peaks, yeah, of course God loves me. I'm pretty wonderful. But then we go into the trough. We go into the valley of darkness. And we see how who we really are. There are moments where we get a glimpse of just how awful we are how terrible our circumstances, how dark the world is. And it's the contrast between that peak and that depth that instills doubt and fear in us. But remember, God knows your story from beginning to end. At your most exalted moment, when you are feeling like a child of God, beloved, surrounded by the family of God, everything is right with the world, God is with you. But God at that very moment knows all the terrible things you have done or you ever will do. God, not, God shares the, the high moments, the glorious moments, but he also shares the dark moments. And God's opinion of you does not change. He has seen you from beginning to end. He has seen your innermost being. The book of your life is before him. And therefore, his relationship, his opinion, his love, his decision to have a relationship with you at all, is not negotiable. It is not up for grabs. There are no surprises to God. And when he decides to love you, it's forever. He's never going to be blindsided by a wicked side of you he did not know. You know, you will sometimes, and this, this happens um, a lot, particularly it seems like with younger people. They'll be in college or they'll be in some ministry and they'll be all excited about God and, and maybe they become a Christian and they get baptized and everything is great. And then they go out in the world after college and life is hard. And after a few years, you know, they're, they're carousing, they're doing whatever it is. They're not honoring God in their life. They decide, wow, I need to get back to where I was. I was backslidden. I'd slidden away from God. And now it's time to recommit and really, really, really be a good Christian. And oftentimes they'll come and ask to be rebaptized. This time I want to start fresh, clean slate. I'm really, really into God right now. I'm devoting my whole life to God. I want to be baptized. I want to be a Christian. I want to be a beloved child of God. And then a year later, they're backslidden away and off they go. And their faith, their Christian life, becomes a series of trying hard and sliding back and trying hard and sliding back and trying hard and sliding back. This psalm and Christian theology, what the Bible says, is that is a lie. There's no such thing as a backslidden Christian. We're all slidden that's where we start from, and God loves us anyway, and he loves us from beginning to end, and therefore you cannot lose that. It is the reason that uh, a baptism, uh, your baptism, my baptism, is a means of grace. It is a sacrament. A sacrament means a means of grace, a means of understanding how much God loves us. When you are the highest moment of your life, you can look back on your baptism and say, and God loves me. And when you are the lowest moment of your life, the most wretched, dreadful person, you can look at your baptism and say, and God loves me still. That's why it's a means of grace. Baptism is not a sign of our faithfulness. It is a sign of God's faithfulness. And that's why we do it once. And it says, no matter what happens in my life, from beginning to end, from top to bottom, I belong to God. He loves me. He forgives me. He's on my side. And why that is so important is, oftentimes, people need God at their worst moments. And if you believe that your relationship with God depends on how you feel or what you've done, at those worst moments of your life, that's when God is furthest away from you. But if you believe that God knows you from beginning to end, that God knows your worst and your best and loves you through it all, then, and this is useful to yourself, remember that you're a baptized child of God. And if you're counseling somebody, this is where it's so useful in, in pastoral counseling. Somebody comes to you broken, bereft, thinking that they are unlovable, rejected, done something terrible, something terrible has been done to them, feeling like they're not capable of loving God and that God shouldn't be able to love a person like them. That's when you remind them that God knows all this. And if they're a baptized Christian, you've been in his hands all the way through all your life. And he's with you right now in the darkest part of your life. Same is true of the other sacrament. There are two sacraments in the Christian church, baptism and the Lord's Supper. What does this table say? Well, it's the family table of the church. It's the family table of God. The elements are Christ's sacrifice for us so that we can come to God's table. You may have come to church this morning feeling like a wretched, lost soul. Maybe some of you or many of you have done terrible things this week, or last year, or whenever. Maybe you are an unlovable in human terms. As the Bible likes to say, you're a depraved sinner. But you can come to God's table because Christ paid the price. And if you can come to God's table, the family table of the church, you are family. There is a place at the table saved just for you with your name on it and it will always be there. That is a means of grace. It's a reminder when we need it most that God loves us. It is a resource. We eat and drink the body of our Savior, even at the darkest moments of our life. That's why it's a sacrament. How precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, I am still with you. God is fully present to us in our best moments and our worst moments. Every moment of our life, every place in our life. And therefore, he's right there with you right now. And the Christian life is learning to love and enjoy and develop that presence in relationship. There's a wonderful book um, called The Practice of the Presence of God. It's become something of a, a, a classic. Uh, it was written in the 16th century. It was a monk. And he spent his monastery existence washing pots and pans. And that's basically what he did for nearly his whole career. But he was recognized by the other monks as being special, always filled with joy, illuminated by God's presence. And he said this, all we have to do is recognize God as being intimately present within us. Then we may speak directly to him every time we need to ask for help, to know his will in moments of uncertainty and do whatever he wants us to do in a way that pleases him. We should offer our work to him before we begin and thank him afterwards for the privilege of having done them for his sake. This continuous conversation would also include praise and loving God incessantly for his infinite goodness and perfection. He's talking about a life of worship. Not just Sunday, not just at special moments, not when just when you're feeling good and energetic and, and delighted in your identity, but every moment in the drudgery of life At work, in your commute, at 3 a.m. in the morning, changing diapers, every traffic jam, every subway ride. Every moment of your life is present to God. And if you invite him, he will be present to you as you pray and as you worship. There are no wasted moments. Think about that. There are no wasted moments in your life. But then we get a discordant note. If only you, God, would slay the wicked. Away from me, you who are bloodthirsty. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. For a long time, when I used to read the psalm, I would skip these verses. And when I would read them out loud or use them in a prayer meeting or some kind of event, I would skip these verses because... You know, everything's kind of sweet. God is present. God made us, knit us together. He loves us. We're right there with Him. And then slay the wicked. What is happening here? Well, the way to make sense of this is to remember who wrote it. The Psalms, by the way, are the great prayer resource of the Bible. Because they are, I would say, some of the most honest reflections of real people, especially David, wrestling with his faith. And he is not afraid to say what he's thinking. Remember, we we looked at David last week when we looked at Psalm 16. David was a shepherd. He spent much of his early life alone out on the hillsides looking up, At God's glory, you know, the heavens declare the glory of God, the wonder, the beauty, the majesty, the power of his God. And he must have felt very close to God at those moments. And then from that high lofty place, he sees evil in the world. He sees cruel people. Do I not hate those who hate you, Lord, and abhor those who are in rebellion against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. So there he is in this lofty place with his God, feeling at one with God and the universe. You know, God is on his throne. And David wonders, I can see bad people. Lord, why don't you just get rid of them? Why don't you just slay them? Why don't you just make the world a prettier place by getting rid of all the evil? And by the way, the reason I I say is honest, I think Christians Christians through all times and places have felt this way. At different times, at some times, we feel loved by God, we feel exalted, we feel close to holiness, close to goodness and justice and beauty. And from that perspective, we see people who are not acting in that way. And in our hearts, we say, look, God, there's the problem over there. The problem over there is those people. Get rid of those people. And not only will the heavens declare your glory, but the people of the world will declare your glory. Everything will be okay. But that's the problem with looking at the world from that lofty place. There's a technical term for this spiritual position. It's called self-righteous bigotry. It is the sense that because you know a good God, you are a good person, fundamentally. And you can recognize bad people, and you know how to solve the problem of bad people. Get rid of them. Thankfully, we don't just have this Psalm of David. We also have Psalm 51. You see, David, a man of God, a simple shepherd, became king of Israel. And he united God's people and he became the king of God's people. And he became rich and powerful. And he also became indolent. And one time, one summer, when his armies were off fighting, from his palace he saw a woman. He was on the roof and he saw her bathing, Bathsheba. And he orders her to be brought to him in his palace. And he has sex with her. What he does is he rapes her. And she gets pregnant. And suddenly, David, this holy man of God, this king, is faced with a dilemma. If people find out what he's done, they're not going to respect him as a holy man of God, king of God's people anymore. And so he tries to hide it up. He brings back Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, Good soldier at the battlefront, he's ordered back, and David assumes that Uriah will sleep with Bathsheba, his wife, and problem solved. The baby will be Uriah's. But it was the tradition then, when the, when uh, Israelite soldiers, God's holy people, were fighting God's battles, the soldiers would make themselves chaste. They would they would um, sometimes fast. But they would also fast from relationships with their wives. And so Uriah, a virtuous soldier, does not have sex with his wife. And she's pregnant, and David is going to be found out. So what does he do? David, this holy, good man of God. He gives Uriah a letter to give to his commander, and he sends him back to the battle. And the letter to the commander says, put Uriah at the very front of the battle where he's guaranteed to be killed. And Uriah is killed. David murders him. This shepherd who could, under the stars, think he was a good person, who, recognizing the beauty of God, thought that he was good enough to say to God, slay those other people, rapes a woman, murders her husband to protect his reputation. And because God is everywhere and knows everything, God sends a prophet, Nathan, to challenge David. And there he's revealed. Have mercy on me, O God, for I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. The world is not divided into good and bad people. All people, compared with God's perfection, God's goodness, God's holiness, by that exacting standard, we are all sinful people. We are all evil. Our hearts are filled with things that are not of God. And David found it out, and he wrote that psalm. How can sinful people, known by God, not be terrified? Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. You get a glimpse there that there is a way forward, that God will provide a way forward, that he will lead us out of that predicament. If you, Lord, kept a record of sins, Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, so that we can, with reverence, serve you. Here, David is telling us about the one who is to come, the Messiah. He's telling us about Jesus, the, God, the one that God will send to restore sinful people to relationship with God. You know, we're going to go and meet that God at the table this morning. And as you go, I want you to think of a few things. We saw how God is not like us, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in perfect, eternal fellowship and love. Jesus left that to enter our world, it's what we celebrate at Christmas, to become a child, to draw close to us in an overwhelming act of love, solidarity, and commitment. Think of what he gave up to come into our broken world, a world of suffering and pain and evil. And think what he gave up, not just by Uh, that, that move from Trinity into the world but what he gave up personally, Jesus was omnipotent that means he had all the power that is at his disposal and yet for our sakes he becomes a finite vulnerable, weak man who can be betrayed by a kiss he gave up all his power omniscience Jesus knows everything. But in his limitations as a human being, he says that he's now dependent on the Father's will. And only the Father knows what's going to happen. And when he goes to the cross, he has to depend on the Father. Father, into your hands I give my spirit and omnipresence. God is not limited. God is infinite, pure spirit, fills all time and space, a vast existence we can't begin to imagine. And yet Jesus gave up all of that and crammed himself down into this small, human, finite existence. It's almost impossible to get your mind around that. You know, some of you know that uh, for a long time I've been desiring a motorbike. The only reason I, I don't do it is because of New Jersey roads and the fear that I'm going to end up crippled, you know, a paraplegic, broken neck, lose my kneecaps or my legs or my arms, and I'll end up in a bed, trapped, looking up at the ceiling in a nursing home somewhere. You think of that limitation to go from a functional human being, able to move around in the world of freedom, to be trapped in a hospital bed. Well, The difference between my existence now and my existence as a paraplegic, God forbid, is trivial. In fact, the difference between our life and any creature in this world, you know, the lowest insect or mollusk or worm, is trivial compared with the distance from an infinite God to a finite human being. that's what he did that's what I want you to think about when you come to the table what Jesus gave up willingly to cram his infinite life into a human person to become vulnerable not just vulnerable to take on all the evil of the world including yours and pay the price for it how much would you have to love someone to become a worm for them Jesus went much further, and we receive the fruits every time we go to the table. It's a reminder of who he is, and who we are, and how much we need him. Let's pray. Lord, have mercy on me, for I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. If you, Lord, kept a record of sins, Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, so that we can, with reverence, serve you. Lord, we thank you for that truth. And as we come to the table, teach us that truth, remind us of who we are, remind us of all that you've done. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.